0: Hello and welcome to the I3 podcast. My name is Walter Klein and I am the director of content for the Investment Innovation Institute. For more information about our educational forums for institutional investors, please visit our website at www.i3- This podcast was sponsored by Trillium. As such, the sponsor makes suggestions for discussion, but the final control over the content remains with the Investment Innovation Institute. Welcome to the i3 podcast. I'm here today with Daniela Jaramillo, who is responsible investment advisor for HESTA. Daniela, welcome to the show. Hello, Walter. Thank you. So, can you tell me a little bit about your background and how you got started in the responsible investment space?
1: Sure. I started my career actually in Ecuador, where I'm from, and I started as a founder of an NGO that was focusing on uh, social and education projects in the region. And And it was really rewarding. We had really deep impact in the community, but at that point, I really felt that I needed to be in a space where I could have more influence. And so when I moved to London for my master's degree, I actually understood the financial world and the impact that could be achieved through um, finance and and especially through institutional investors that have such a long-term horizon. So it's very attracted to the space and to the level of influence and impact it could have in I started my career in um, legal and general, the asset manager in the UK as an ESG analyst. Then I moved to um, the US, where I was also in a in a responsible investment role for a faith-based pension fund, with Beth Investment Management. And I married an Australian. So that's how I ended up in Melbourne, where I've been in HESTA uh, for the last uh, four and a half years, basically advising the, the fund on how to integrate um environmental, social, and governance
0: issues. Yes, you married Australia Australian, so did I, and they always tend to go home. So here we are in Australia, right?
1: <laughs> Little did I know.
0: <laughs> so you joined HESTA four years ago. Um, how did you end up with with a super fund? Because your, your background is both legal um, investments. How, how did you get to a super fund?
1: Yeah, my background is more actually in journalism and um, and. I have a master's degree in um, environmental economics, but um, I ended up in super funds because I was always really attracted to uh, it's in the business of thinking long term. That's what institutional investors are. And this is where I felt that our interests aligned. We all wanted to have sustainability in the terms of longer time frame, which actually also means from an environmental and social uh, perspective, being sustainable, so um, I, I always really liked the institutional investor business model, and and I really liked the, what Hesta was about—the uh, members that we stand for uh, in the health and community sector. That's something that was really attractive for me. Eighty percent of um, Hesta's members are women, and so there's a strong al- alignment with with pushing for women's issues, and that's another area that I feel very strongly about. So it was a very attractive opportunity for me.
0: Yeah, Hesta is a very progressive fund, and I think in terms of the 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 position to. Claim- climate change um, you have to put in place a climate uh, change transition plan and under the plan uh, has aims to reduce the absolute carbon emissions in the investment portfolio by 33 percent by 2030 and end up that way with net zero in in 2050 sort of in line with the the Paris uh, agreement so what sort of practical steps are you taking to achieve these carbon reductions
1: Great. And I might just start pointing out something you've pointed out to the fact that we're focusing on absolute um, term. We were really keen on reducing carbon emissions at the absolute level as opposed to the relative because we really feel that our role is making an impact at the at the system level not just necessarily for our fund and therefore the steps and the approach that we've taken for a climate transition plan is really driven by that wanting of not only doing what we some, i sometimes call carbon accounting which is just reducing the carbon of our portfolio without necessarily having any impact in the real world our climate transition plan really wants to make a, an impact in the in the global economy and in the in the real world so therefore the steps we've taken is first of all it's really having a clear baseline as to where we're working from to see well how can we um, reduce the carbon and then we have a a really an approach that's very has its core stewardship and engagement with companies because that's the only way of actually achieving a change in the real world. So getting companies to set their target and hold them accountable to the carbon reduction, I think using our shareholder voice to achieve that is one of the most powerful things that we can do um, as a fund. Obviously, that's, um, that's one of the and a key step in our process. And we do this through being part of uh, initiatives like um, Climate Action 100 plus uh, and others, but we also have our own uh, internal engagement. And we work really closely and and want to partner with our investment managers so that they use their voice also in reducing this carbon emissions so that's a really key part of our climate transition plan we also have um, a divestment um tactic in our in our plan and this is mainly for those businesses that we consider pure play and that we really don't see how their business models could transition to a more low carbon business model so i would say that those are the key components in terms of mitigating um, risk and reducing carbon emissions but we also see an upside to this low carbon transition and this means taking advantage of opportunities that might arise. And this is not only uh, looking for renewable energy investments, that's what everyone thinks about, but there's a lot of opportunities in the energy value chain that we could take advantage. And, and, so, and, it, and everything that has to do with um, energy efficiency. So we're really looking, where are those opportunities? What are those technologies that we should be investing in? And we do this across um, our asset classes.
0: Yeah, can you give some examples of that? So you started with there are certain businesses that whose whose model just doesn't really allow it for, and then there's the opportunity side as well. Yeah, can you give some examples of that?
1: Sure, we've made a few investments here um, in Australia in in renewable energy, uh, both in wind and solar. So, so that's that's a key part. And then we also have um, investments globally in in renewable energy. But further than that, we have looked at the technology and through um, our private equity funds, we do have an exposure to clean technologies and this goes from looking at smart meters, which um, help in uh, promoting energy efficiency, to looking at different um, technologies and alternatives that could support the whole value chain. So it's it's, it's actually broad in that sense, our investments.
0: Uh, Australia is a pretty um, resources, heavily resources-based economy. What, what do you see as some of the risks of this transition uh, for, for sort of domestic uh, investments?
1: Yeah, you're correct. That the, in a way, and especially if you look, for example, our, our ASX 200. There's a there's a, a lot of energy firms, but we do see, for example, firms like AGL successfully setting targets and putting strategies in place, not only to reduce their carbon, but to have that more portfolio uh, uh, business in which they actually don't only rely or they actually increase their renewable energy exposures. So I would say that the majority of um, Australian businesses can actually transition. They need to have the will and they need to have sometimes encouragement from from public policy, but most of the businesses can. Um, It's not the same for, for example, pure coal, companies um, that don't have that portfolio um, and and so they don't have that ability to shift from uh, one product to another. And I think those are the ones that are uh, mainly going to suffer. So the implications for Australia, and, and and this is this is a challenge that we need to uh, accept and understand and try to see it the best way we can. There are going to be those communities that rely on those companies, um, and and that uh, for their economic development. And this is where we need that support from the government and partnerships with investors and the private sector to see how we help those communities transition out of those um, industries.
0: Yeah, so that you also get a a fair social outcome for. The- communities there exactly yeah HESTA has put in place a thermal coal mining restriction across its investment options and um, obviously that will help as well with dealing with the the carbon emissions but it also goes into the issue of stranded assets how big of a risk do you see that being stranded assets
1: most of the stranded assets do come from that thermal coal At this point we don't see um, assets that come from uh, oil and gas, uh, for example, or other uh, mining to be stranded, just because we do think that in the low carbon economy, there is still a role for oil and gas, the key thing is that it's not for it's mainly for. um, For support and uh, to the base load that would come from renewables so. The risk of stranded assets is mainly, um, as we see, it's mainly from thermal coal, and this is why our restriction has kind of limited to that.
0: Yeah. Now, one of the issues I find interesting as well in whenever we talk about ESG policies, every action you take sort of might end up in a skew in the portfolio and you know there's uh with with new regulations coming out there's a lot of attention for for tracking error and, and making sure you don't uh stray too far away from sort of benchmarks how, how do you think around that issue of making sure that the esg policy in itself doesn't end up with unintended type of skews yeah that's a,
1: that's a fantastic question whether something that we have discussed um heavily in in all of our decisions including the decision to put a target um at our ic level and at our investment level and 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 something that should be considered and this um and, and and there's almost like a philosophical discussion are we are we saying that we are supporting more for example growth stocks versus value stocks i suppose that that's kind of the type of the skew that you that you refer to yeah um and and we have thought about this the by by nature um in the case for example of value stocks they tend to be more asset heavy and so therefore in general the, their environmental footprint is bigger than for other um, companies so just by the nature of what they are there is a little bit of that bias however we do think that it is possible to invest in value stocks even though they are this um, a bit of more asset heavy, and they might have a higher carbon footprint. And there's been an interesting paper, actually, I think Rubico published a paper last year, um, how to invest in value by um, keeping a low carbon footprint. And, and, And the key thing is ensuring that if you're buying a company cheap because of its value, you should be accounting that there might be a mispricing of that carbon. So as long as you do some accounting for what that carbon might be or for those uh, additional footprint and what those risks might come that might not be priced in, it would be possible to have a strategy that focuses on that. The other key consideration to have is carbon is quite concentrated in a few companies. Uh, So the whole concept of the Climate Action 100 Plus is selecting which are the a hundred or so companies that are the biggest contributors to carbon emissions so if you look at a hundred companies across the whole um this is public listed companies it's not much so it is easy to to potentially have a portfolio without necessarily deviating too much from benchmarks
0: Yeah, yeah So, so the whole value growth is is one dimension of it. I, I suppose another key focus um, of, of policies is whether you divest or not. Hester does have a, a few uh, um, restrictions in place and negative screens. What what is sort of your thinking behind divestment? Is that really a last point of of action, uh, or or is it something that is just you know an instrument that people should not be afraid to use?
1: We definitely think of divestment as one of the tools. Um, and as I said, in the case of Thermal Coal, the main reason why we do it is because we really don't see a way in which we can invest in those companies without being heavily exposed to climate change transition risk and stranded asset risk. Like We just don't see that. But in general, as I said before, our intention is not necessarily just reducing the carbon in our portfolio. So with divestment, that would be really easy. We just get rid of the biggest uh, polluters and we just find our, our carbon footprint would be reduced. The problem is that we're not achieving a real or an absolute reduction. And therefore, we're, the, the problem is still out there and the rest of our portfolio is still exposed to all the risks that come with climate change, such as the physical risk of climate change. So if we don't um, start addressing and reducing carbon emissions, uh, in the real world, not only in our portfolio, we're still exposed to uh, uh, the physical risks of climate change. Therefore, we, we're not interested in necessarily just divesting from companies where we could actually have a genuine change and impact uh, in reducing the carbon emissions. Um, so, in in the case of um, something that has been brought up um, as a something that a challenge that the ESG industry has faced is. Well, what if those companies are not changing and and would you consider that divestment as an ultimate as a final um solution i think that's something that we would like in the cases in which we actually where we actually don't see that no movement is happening and no change is happening we would consider it but at this point um we we haven't done it and it would have to be under a, a really um structured and well thought escalation process uh, that leads us to believe like we really can't change anything within this company therefore we should perhaps consider a divestment but it's not something that um, at the moment we are um, actively doing and and but it is uh, something that we might consider it in the future
0: yeah that's that's an interesting point that you say that you might divest from a company but that doesn't mean the risk is gone away it's still a risk climate change is such a big issue that it's still a risk for the other companies in the portfolios as well and at least through engagement you can hopefully make some change there one of the other instruments uh, you could use um, that we've discussed a little bit is around shareholder resolutions. Now, that is often seen um, as a, a step where you're actually taking the, the the discussion beyond just talking to a company and say, okay, now you need to actually start listening too. What, what is sort of your view on resolutions?
1: I'll tell you a little bit of a story regarding shareholder resolutions. When I was working in the US, shareholder resolutions, because they're such... Um, Large group of investors in the US, boards really don't have the time to meet with everyone. And so shareholder resolutions have an interesting role. They're actually a conversation starter with companies, it's a way of calling companies' attention to say, hey, Especially for smaller investors, uh, obviously the Black Rocks of this world will always get those meetings. But smaller investors, or even some institutional investors that they, them themselves are not directly investing in the companies, might use shareholder resolutions as a conversation starter. So when I moved to Australia, I found it so interesting the amazing exposure that us as investors have to board members, and so therefore here in Australia, shareholder resolutions are a little bit like a, a, as the last resort. I do think though, in general globally, the role of shareholder resolutions is evolving, and it's seen as one additional tool, not necessarily the last tool. We have seen companies that have supported shareholder resolutions that have, in a way, partnered with those shareholders, and said, actually, we, we do agree with what you're proposing. And they're almost using them, I would say, as a, as a way of communicating formally what are shareholders' preferences or what are shareholders' views and on the steps that companies should take. I think that that's a very um, interesting, and I think that's the direction in general that shareholder resolution should take. Uh, for too long, there's been a lot of conversations, what we call behind closed doors, where we're like, oh no, but we are talking to the company about this, but then we're like, but we're not seeing any change and, and members complain, so they're like, well, you've been talking to them for 10 years and nothing has happened. A shareholder resolution could be a friendly but direct way of keeping companies accountable to something that has been agreed and almost like a communication um, not necessarily a communication starter you would want to have had those conversations before and almost agree um, this is the way shareholders manifest their support for specific asks to companies and in certain cases companies might choose to support them i think that that type of using shareholder resolutions in this way could help us achieve change in a in, in a in a shorter time frame, and without necessarily that confrontation. That at the moment there's still a bit of that perception.
0: So, do you see a point where HESTA will uh, um, f- file or co-file shareholder resolutions?
1: Yeah, we we have co-filed um, in the past, um, but not not very often. But I think that's definitely something that we are considering, and 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 something that depending. We have a, a set of tools that we can use for change, right? And and we need to figure out which one's the right one for this company, for this specific situation. And 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 I think that we are willing to use any of the tools that are available to shareholders to achieve the change that we want. We're really focusing on what can help us achieve this outcome. And if we think that a shareholder resolution is the best way, I think we we're not afraid of using. It. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Now. There's a lot of focus on climate change and, and the energy transition, which obviously are, are important points, but uh, there's, there's two other letters in the ESG uh, policy. Um, where is your position on, on some of the social issues? Is, is that high on the agenda?
1: Yeah, social issues is interesting because they've kind of always been there, but it does feel that in the last few years they've really risen in the agenda and especially last year i think um in australia with uh the whole you Can gorge and, and 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 a few of the um sexual harassment scandals have risen and they i think that would only continue happening that the main driver for this i see is societal expectations are so much higher and you see employees and prospective employees and consumers are willing to vote with their feet whenever they feel that Mm company has not met those societal expectations. So movements like the Black uh, Black Lives Matter movement or the Me Too movement have really put these uh, issues in the agenda and they're becoming real risks for boards. Boards need to be ahead of what is the next Me Too movement and how can I prepare my company to deal with those? Do I have some sort of social stranded asset risk within my organization that might come up in the next five to 10 years? And how do we help our company transition and navigate that? so i really think it's that mix between societal expectations that have been driven by this uh, more macro movement combined with um we have a lot more millennials and we have social media which makes it so easy to share those concerns and for people to be aware of what's happening that are really creating a risk that has always been there but now it's surfacing and and it's becoming a real reputational risk but it's also becoming there was a survey from LinkedIn saying 70% of millennials are willing to take a pay cut or change jobs because they don't want to work for a company that doesn't align with their values. So that really impacts uh, companies' ability to hire and retain good talent. So those that's where the risks for investors are, and we really see that as a board responsibility to to help companies navigate those social risks.
0: Yeah, so you call call it a social-stranded asset, which is an interesting term. Um, it, it sort of comes back to, I suppose, a reputational risk as well, uh, which ultimately might lead to to financial uh, impact. But you mentioned the the, the Yukon College, um where in, there was this issue with, with Rio Tinto that, that basically blew up uh, a World Heritage site, uh, if, if I might have phrased it in that way. And I think HESTA has taken some, some practical steps there to... Engage with mining companies and ensure that that they uh, um, work together with the traditional owners on, on sort of heritage protection issues. It's, it's 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 a very sort of interesting and important uh, move. How do you relate that back though to sort of practical integrations in in, in the investment portfolio? How do you sort of shift your thinking from this is obviously a a social issue, a societal issue to where do the numbers come in?
1: Yeah, that's also an excellent question. Um, When I was working in the US, we were looking at a mining company that had a $5 billion mine that had been stranded because of social risks. This is um, a, a, a gold mine in um, near Yanacocha, and this uh, and the company was uh, Newman Mining that had a scandal that was very public, and that it, it, there were there were loss of lives in the in the confrontation between police and the the protesters. That's an extreme example, but that's a five billion dollar stranded asset for that company. In the case of the Yukon Gorge, it's not it's not the same, but it is really clear that. Maintaining and and starting with really good community relations, it's very important for a mine, in this case, uh, in in Rio Tinto, for mine to be able to operate. And and sometimes it's tricky because sometimes there's the appearance of a good relationship, but because We have to recognize there's a power imbalance between a large corporation with a lot of resources and a lot of the best law firms and small communities that might not be as organized and might not have the resources to really negotiate an agreement that works for everyone, so we see the risk that we saw in the case of the Yukon Gorge as something systemic. It's not only related to Rio, it just came up in the case of Rio, and, and it's kind of more like a, a symptom of a, of a bigger problem, which is this power imbalance that exists, that creates kind of a little bit of an illusion that we have a great relationship with the community, but then when things like this come up you, you realize that it was not really the case and the case that I mentioned of Newmont in, 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 in I think it was 2011 it's a, a, an extreme case. But you can really see how important how material it is to the functioning of a mind to keep really genuine strong relationships that are equitable and. Uh, where, where that power imbalance is addressed between the Community and uh, the companies and that matters to us to investors.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's, it's interesting to think that this space of ESG and responsible investing is, is very wide and you have to get your head around a lot of different issues. <laughs> How do you do it?
1: Uh, look, I, I, I'm a generalist by nature. Um, I think this is as deep as I can talk to you about anything. <laughs> Don't ask me to go like really, really deep on anything. Um, I think it's just a matter of being interested in, in, in these issues and um, yeah, I, I think it, it really appeals to generalists. And we do have teams and we're able to rely on um external uh, support that are actually experts uh in the depth. But in, in general, yes, you're right, it's really hard to, to get our heads around and keep ourselves updated on everything, on every single issue. Uh, we try the best of our can, but I think it's more about learning how to use external resources. Um, and I think the industry in Australia is quite developed now that we can go to our climate experts, we can go to our modern slavery experts that are actually able to go really deep into those issues.
0: Yeah, I, I suppose using those external sources and particularly sort of ESG rating agencies, th- there is a little bit of a concern about a lack of standardization of these different measures how do you make use of that information and, and try to come up with a coherent sort of standpoint
1: like this is one of the biggest challenges we have and if i had a magic wand then i could actually change something in the esg industry
0: oh, that was my the last way... question.
1: if there's something i could fix is the way we access and the availability of data um The ratings agency, they all have their own process and it's not the same and it's not straightforward the way it is for some other financial metrics, because the things that we are trying to assess are not straightforward. um, And they're not easy to measure they're not easy easy to get access to and and, unfortunately, I do think that an obsession with getting this data right in some cases has made our impact really slow. So the last 10 years, like, like if you see when when CDB, the carbon disclosure project started, they've done an amazing thing. But, and that, that allows us to set targets right now, to see and to think that they're actually quite accurate and we're, we're able to reduce our carbon. But that has taken like, what, 10 years? And that takes a lot of effort from shareholders to ask companies to disclose, to the point that sometimes disclosure becomes the end as opposed to the means. I could change something is actually getting that access to data that measurability of data so that we can actually know how can we be more effective in our actions and how we can prioritize better. So back to the ratings agencies they all do the best they can and they all develop their own methodology and, and for us investors we need to try to figure out okay with which methodology most of us we don't use one. most of us consider a few and we complement each other as we see fit. But there is that challenge with standardization, and, and 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 it's not only the standardization, but it's actually the ability of companies to, to report and, and, and the ability of us to capture meaningful data, not just certain things that are easy to report. Um, sometimes, for example, we're obsessed with number of women on boards, but does that mean that a company that has a, a great representation of women in their boards Does that mean that the company doesn't have any gender-based risk, for example? No, it doesn't, but we don't know how to measure. We don't have the data to measure. So we try to use those proxies. The proxies work sometimes, and other times they're they're, uh, inadequate. So yeah, it's a challenge. but I do think that technology is helping some of the, those um, ratings providers become uh, more um, accurate and sophisticated in how they assess companies and, and hopefully uh, we can leapfrog and, and really move out from this um, trying to capture and, and, and this very process heavy to actually, how can we achieve those outcomes?
0: Yeah, so do you think that the advent of big data machine learning will help with that or will it just swamp you with more data? Oh, definitely,
1: definitely. And there's already some um, providers that are doing really interesting things um, with with that. Uh, The challenge for us now is understanding which providers um, can help us at the total portfolio level. Some providers focus on listed companies or, or specific issues. But for example, for us at HESTA, we need someone that is able to help us across all our asset classes and also across most of the issues, not just, for example, carbon or not just kind of workforce. So, yeah, it, it's a, a little bit of mix and match uh, for us, uh, but we do, I do think that technology, um, AI and, and, and the greater access to collecting and scraping data um, will help us in becoming more effective in in generating impact.
0: Yeah. We've seen uh, more recently uh, attention for the UN Sustainable Development Goals and I believe that HESTA has chosen or selected seven of those goals to which they think they can uh, align the portfolio. Can you tell me a little bit about that and and why particularly those seven?
1: Sure. So. The sustainable development goals are are a great framework in which we actually have uh, the countries prioritizing what are the world's biggest, what should be the world's biggest priorities, what are the biggest problems that we need to solve. Initially, this might seem that our very country um, focus, it's something that should be uh, dealt with at the policy level. But if we think of institutional investors and universal owners like HESTA, we are exposed to the global economy. So we are exposed to supply chains across the world. We're exposed to um, whatever's happening in terms of um, physical risk of climate change across the world. We might have investments in Florida that uh, might be heavily impacted, for example, by um, hurricanes and tornadoes increasing with climate change. So we we are exposed to those risks that happen at the system level. And this is why we like the SDGs because they they offer us a framework to start addressing those system level uh, problems. The HESA board has identified seven key SDGs. And these are mainly things that yes matter to our members um, and that are the most material we would say from an investment perspective but it's also the ones where we think we can have a biggest a bigger impact through our um as shareholders um so we do this either through our um through mobilizing capital to solve those problems or um through stewardship so engaging with companies and ensuring these companies are trying to at least not creating those problems and ideally trying to solve those problems but then we also have our advocacy um tool where we there's certain um, issues that we think we can uh, address better using our voices large investors and, and and advocating for specific things um the seven sdgs that we um have selected are um and i hope i get this right i'm probably gonna forget one um, <laughs> but they are um number three which focuses in good health uh number six which is um, sustainable water. Number seven um, and number 13, which are kind of the climate change SDGs. So one is um, affordable and clean energy for all, and the other one refers more to actually climate uh, risk. Uh, Number eight, which refers to decent work and economic development. Uh, And number 11, which refers to um, sustainable cities. Those are the key SDGs. So as I said, the criteria was, which are the ones that impact us from a system level risk? which ones matter to our members, and then which are the ones where we can have that um, biggest impact as shareholders.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So can you give an example of one of the SDGs in, in how you think about it from an investment perspective?
1: Um, sure, I can pick an example that's not related to climate since we've already talked a lot about it. <laughs> yes. um, I, I think I think another one that's um, key and that we've done a lot of work is um, gender equality. We. You might be aware of an initiative that has started 4040 vision, which aims to put more women, uh, not only in boards, but in executive leadership. Uh, That's one of the targets in SDG number five. Sorry, I did miss that one. Actually, I'm happy I mentioned it. I did miss SDG number five. Um, And and, and one of the targets under the SDGs is actually increasing the access uh, of women to leadership positions. Why does that matter to us as investors? There's plenty of evidence to show that having uh, a diverse uh, and gender diverse teams in decision-making positions actually helps uh, companies make better decisions. And so there's that clear alignment for us as investors. But then there's also that's one of the priorities for um, SDG number five.
0: There's a lot on your plate. Um, What what is sort of the key priorities for for the next year or two? What are you... Working on on a day to day basis.
1: Look, one of our key priorities um, is starting to measure our impact. We, we're talking a lot, we're doing a lot, but we actually need to realize where where are we actually generating that real world outcomes. We've reported in the past an outcome of footprint in a way. It's it's a way in which we actually try to to report, but we want to do it a bit. We want to do this a bit more and actually report on oh, to what extent are we helping move the needle through our um, investment, our advocacy, and our stewardship activities. So, uh, uh, an impact, we developed what we call the HEMA, which is a HESTA impact management approach, which is uh, the measurement framework. And, and, and that, and, and finding the right partners to help us measure and assess that impact is one of our key priorities at the moment. Uh, the implementation of our climate transition plan is key, and that is something that will become uh, an ongoing piece of work. And then the other thing that we're really thinking of is how are we, how can we start um thinking of investing in, in, in SDG opportunities? Um, and, and how do we embed this in our asset allocation process? How do we think of it in um not only in a in a um, ad hoc way as opportunities arise, but how are we more systematic in including this in our total portfolio um, and asset allocation process? So I think those are things that we are thinking about and how can we, um, that we're trying to learn from peers um, overseas and and trying to integrate this to make it more systematic.
0: Yeah, as you're thinking, in developing these frameworks uh, been changed at all by you know last year with the with the pandemic causing a big turmoil and everything does it change sort of your thinking around esg issues
1: look i think the pandemic kind of just confirmed a lot of things that we had been thinking about i think it was great to show how a social issue like um a social and a health issue can impact um the world and and that that and it really brought um, to the surface what systemic risk is.
0: Hmm.
1: We have been thinking about systemic risk from a climate perspective, from an inequ- social inequality perspective, but I think this really brought to the surface and confirmed that systemic risk and 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 the social implications and the health implications of an issue like COVID can have deep. Um, impacts in the economy and in um, our investments. So I don't think it necessarily changed anything, but it did confirm that we need to, our focus as universal owners is at the system
0: level. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. Well, Daniela, thank you very much for for your time. It was great speaking with you. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Walter, I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you for listening to the i3 podcast. For more information, please visit www.i3-invest.com Thank you very much.